1: Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off the cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. And welcome to another episode of the Everyday Mindfulness Show. I have a very special guest here today. That is Tracy Maxwell. And Tracy is a survivor, a speaker, an activist, a highly experienced professional with universities. Around the country, we actually have one very much in common where I got my bachelor's is where she got her master's. So we're gonna dive right into this uh, and really talk about how you do everything you do, Tracy, and how that imp- how mindfulness plays a role in that in your life and the journey you've had. because a lot of people know you nationally, maybe a little bit more, some as a survivor and others as a hazing expert. So you have these two very distinctly different yet I'm sure they blend together aspects of yourself that people know you for let's talk about the first one which you were in, you were speaking out on hazing working in the hazing environment before you were diagnosed with cancer correct and so why don't we start there your journey was you were working on campuses and how did you get inspired or what motivated you what was the catalyst for speaking out on hazing
0: yeah well first mike thanks for inviting me to be with you and talk about the subject because i will say i couldn't do everything i do If I didn't have already really strong mindfulness practices in my life, it is what makes me able to juggle everything. And especially, as you said, two kind of disparate uh, things that I focus on. And there actually are more than that. But the hazing work got started because after years of working with college students on campuses and for national fraternity and sorority organizations for Campus Speak uh, Speakers Agency, and now as a speaker for Campus Speak, I just was seeing things that made me uncomfortable. And that's actually how I encourage students to talk about hazing, because sometimes when we drop the H-bomb, which is what I call it when we throw that hazing word in there, I mean, everyone knows that hazing is not a good thing. And that's why there tends to be so much confusion and denial around actually what constitutes hazing. among student populations. So I encourage students to talk about it by saying, you know, what what you're doing or what we're doing is making me uncomfortable and that that's a good way to start the conversation in a less threatening way. So I just got really uncomfortable with things that I was seeing, uh, things that I suspected, rumors that I was hearing um, about behaviors that were going on in a community that I had been a part of as a student and I knew what their values were. I knew this was in contradiction to that. And I tell people I finally just got pissed off enough to do
1: something about it. Well, and that's what can do it for a lot of us who do this work, right, is that we, you do finally get fed up. You, you get angry. And people ask me all the time, how do you know what to speak on? I said, what upsets you the most? And and a lot of people say, what are you most passionate about? People don't know the answer to that. But when you ask someone, well, what upsets you the most? People are like, I'm like, well, there, there's a fire there. There's a reason that upsets you. And I think what you, you discussed there about making students uncomfortable, and it's all about mindfulness, right? If you were being mindful, you would not engage in those behaviors. That's right. And so are you able to work that in when you're having these discussions? But look, if I just stopped and thought about, what I was doing, being mindful of that moment. I wouldn't do this.
0: Yeah, it's funny. A friend and I kind of joke about um, that. We really all of our work with college students is about mindfulness. Of course, we don't describe it that way in our marketing materials. Um, You know, we we might talk about leadership or words that are uh, more common to kind of that field. But but yes, it is a huge part of how I approach my work and um, how I try to get people, not, not just with hazing, but with the cancer experience too, um, to really just be more mindful of our, you know, with cancer, our blessings, the good things that are happening in our lives. It's so easy to get wrapped up in everything that's negative and bad. So uh, yeah, there's actually even some research now that is showing that student's level of moral moral engagement really impacts their behavior, which maybe isn't that surprising, right? So the more that we um, are service minded, are socially social justice minded, then the more the less likely we are to hurt our peers. So that makes total sense. So yeah, I do I do slip that in. I'm, I try to be kind of sly about it, but it is a part of every program and every facilitation that I do.
1: And in your own journey of going in, be in mindfulness as far as on your daily life and on making this transition from one area of focus to adding a second was because you are, you're a survivor. You were diagnosed with cancer. And you were, so you were working on a campus as a Greek life advisor, which is what you're referring to there. And you just saw stuff and you were hearing stuff that made you think, what the heck? So then you started a nonprofit on hazing and speaking out on hazing. I assume you spoke before starting the nonprofit. Is that correct?
0: Not really. I mean, I've always been a facilitator. I actually, I never saw myself being a keynote speaker. Um, that was something that other people started, you know, asking me to do. That's not something I ever would have sought out on my own. Um, I'm a writer, so I've written a book about my cancer experience. I've, I've blogged through my entire, today actually is my 12 year cancerversary. Uh, I was diagnosed 12 years ago today and, um, I never saw myself as a speaker. So um, actually I was working at Campus Speak and the the two are a little bit related because I had been working at Campus Speak. I was the first professional employee that they hired at the brand new speakers agency in 1999. And uh, after six years there, I became the CEO. I had been the CEO for one year when I got diagnosed with cancer and when that happened, it, you know, understandably shifts your priorities. So it just started getting me to think about uh, doing something different. And while I loved my work, and I've always worked with college students my entire 25 year career, I was really ready for a different focus. And so I knew I was going to leave campus speak. But I wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. And um After I left, I took the summer off. It was the first summer I'd had off since I was 11 years old. I started working for my parents when I was 12 uh, in their retail store in a tourist area uh, in Kentucky, and I just enjoyed myself. I traveled, and I drove the Pacific Coast Highway and spent time with friends and just had a really actually nice summer off, and in the middle of that summer— Uh, David Stolman, one of the owners of Campus Speak at the time, called me and said, hey, you started these hazing prevention programs. I started them while I was at Campus Speak. Uh, We started National Hazing Prevention Week. We started um, putting out some resource materials. And he said, we love this programming. We think it's essential. It's difficult for it to be part of our company as a for-profit company because it's not something that we can necessarily always make a profit on. And we can't really spend a lot of time on it if that's the case. So we'd like to give you these programs if you want to spin them off into a nonprofit. And so that's really how that got started. So both of those issues were really related for me. It was cancer that led me to think about doing something different. And I had already started those hazing prevention programs as a part of Campus Speak. So it was easy just to take them and, and spin them off into something
1: bigger in a nonprofit venue. And what great mindfulness on multiple levels there. You, you're obviously taking the time to allow yourself to be mindful, to have that time away. And then them calling and saying, do you want this? Which is mindful of them to recognize how do we keep this go? How do we how do we pre- provide a supportive way to keep this going? Because Tracy's so great at this. And even though it doesn't fit where we're aligned over here as far yeah. as a for-profit. Uh, so there was it was on so many levels. And you mentioned something there that I think is really important. So I'm going to go all the way back to when you said today's your 12th anniversary of being diagnosed. And I think when people hear that who have never gone through that or don't know someone close to them, there's a how do I, what's the correct response to that? You know, (laughs) because when people go to the doctor, you know, we have family members and friends that are survivors. And when they go and they get the clearance, well, everybody knows what to say, right? Congratulations. That's wonderful. That's awesome. (laughs) What would be the mindful way to respond when somebody says, well, today's the 12-year anniversary of me finding out I was diagnosed with cancer?
0: Well, congratulations is absolutely appropriate. Um, You know, those of us who are survivors, we have this new occasion to mark now. You know, we we mark our birthday every year, but our cancerversary is really important to many of us. Uh, That's obviously a word that we made up, a term that we coined to describe this unique experience that we've had of, of being diagnosed. So, you know, while I can remember that day 12 years ago that I was diagnosed and it wasn't necessarily a happy day, and I, I mark this occasion every year, usually in a celebratory way. I just posted a blog this morning about how I've, kind of have mixed feelings this year. You know, I didn't just have cancer once. I've had cancer now four times um, I have a rare kind of ovarian cancer, which is great in many ways because the common kind is really deadly and about half of the people that are diagnosed die from it. So I'm lucky that I don't have that kind, but I have a rarer kind that while it's not as aggressive and people don't typically die, at least you know, early, in early stages from it, um, it keeps coming back. So about every three to four years, I have to deal with cancer all over again. So even though it's my 12-year cancerversary, I've really dealt with this really uh, pretty regularly throughout that time, every three to four years. I mean, it's the definition
1: of survivor because <laughs> it's, it's, you're, it's not a one-time survivor. It's an ongoing – and I know for anybody who's listening, they're going, well, anybody who has been diagnosed with cancer, it's ongoing because it can That's come back right. – but to be re-diagnosed, like you said, that certainly adds levels of stress, of emotional roller coasters, that somebody who thinks, hey, I just got to make that clearance, that date, it's not that simple. But if I if I get cleared, I'm, I'm probably good until the next year, where you're like, it's a matter of when. Right. Uh, other people can think, well, I could go the next 30 years without it happening, where you're like, every three to four years. So it's a matter of when. How do you stay mindful knowing that this is a recurring form of cancer?
0: Yeah, well, before I speak to that, I'll say actually and some people have have a terminal diagnosis, so they know they're never going to be free of treatment or and that, you know, that specter of death is kind of always hanging over their heads. And and so I'm really in admiration of them and how, you know, I know that my cancer might come back. But some people know that it's never going to go away. So there are all kinds of levels that when you're a survivor, you have to deal with. And it's really funny because the title of my blog post from this morning is you're never really done with cancer. And that is true for all of us who've had this experience. Uh, You know, one of the things I shared was that I lost a good friend this year. And the more you become immersed in the cancer community, the closer you become to this to the other members of this club that you never wanted to be a part of, but when you are, you're so grateful that you have this amazing support network and these other people who are trying to make something positive out of their experience. And my friend Gavin was absolutely that way. He really benefited from coaching uh, following his his cancer experience, and he, like me, had cancer four times. and and his fourth time, he didn't survive his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he died this past March. But he started a nonprofit uh, doing, helping provide coaching for cancer patients and survivors who are dealing with that kind of emotional fallout that you talk about. So so coaching is one way that's really helped me, and that's why I've become a coach now to try to help others, particularly single survivors, because that was the part of the experience that I identified the most strongly with. When I was diagnosed, I thought, okay, here I am. I'm CEO of this small startup company. I have a small staff. They can't really afford for me to just take time off to go get treatment. So I worked full time throughout my whole process. And actually, that was the best thing for me, because being single and living alone, my first thought was, who's going to take care of me? And now as I look back on it, if I had taken time off and I was just sitting at home by myself staring at four walls, that would have been terrible. So having somewhere to go and a purpose, a reason for getting up out of bed every morning and going to work, something important to do, that really kept me going. So focusing on my work has been a huge mindfulness aspect of um getting me to keep going, helping me get through whatever I'm dealing with, because I know that other people are dealing with it, too. And if something from my experience can help others, you know, that's part of the reason that I have so actively blogged and written and wrote a book and spoken and shared my experience. You know, not everyone is that way. Not everyone wants to be that public about their cancer experience. But for me, that was a really important part of my own recovery and healing.
1: And the blog for anyone listening is IamTracyMaxwell.com. The title is exactly what you just shared with us, Never Really Done With Cancer. I noticed it right away today when I was on the website. And you mentioned being single, which your book is all about, being single with cancer. And I think that that's such a brilliant that you brought that message through that book. Because I when I travel doing the work we do, and even with the Everyday Mindfulness Show, I frequently hear single people say, "Hey, what about us? What about the single adults that nobody's addressing?" <laughs> uh, and I would think with cancer, like I think what you brought up was such an important element of who am I turning to, right? When you when you're in a yeah. healthy, I and mean, because not all relationships are healthy. When you're right. in a long term healthy relationship, you know you have the shoulder to turn to to put your head on, you know, to cry on, to have these moments. Whereas when that person's not there and you walk into an apartment or a home alone you're dealing with you and there's not now there may there's friends. We all know that there's support groups that can be out there, but you are still home alone at different times. And I love that you said for you it was your work. You love your work. So when, even though you're not working and you're home alone and those thoughts are happening, cause this is whether you're married or not, you can feel alone when you're home. Yeah. What do you give as advice for someone to deal with those emotions and those thoughts?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, First, it's always one of my biggest lesson from cancer was learning how to ask for help and not just not just ask for it. But the first step to that was just receiving it when it was offered. You know, I was this very independent person. You know, you don't remain single 48 years of your life without being somewhat independent and strong willed. uh, Right. There's a reason I've chosen this path in my life. And so for me, it was really tough to accept help that was offered to me, I was used to taking care of myself, and not only taking care of myself, but taking care of everyone else. And I read this great book by Bernie Siegel, and his his books are some that I recommend to anybody who's going through any kind of illness. But it particularly resonates uh, for those of us with cancer. Bernie is a an MD, and he has you know been a surgeon for decades, and he said something in one of his books that really got my attention. And he said, the people that spend their lives putting other people ahead of themselves are usually the ones that get cancer. And that was such a huge wake up call for me, because I realized that that's that was exactly what I do. And I I don't want people to misunderstand this and think that I'm saying, Uh, You should never give to other people. I mean, that is my reason for being. I'm never going to stop giving. I'm never going to stop trying to turn my experience into something positive for someone else. But the important piece is that I have to take care of myself first. And so that's the message that when I'm coaching someone or in my book, um, in my speaking, I really try to get across to people is that it's not selfish to put yourself first. It's essential And mindfulness is such a key part of that. I was just speaking at a cancer conference here in Denver in April, and, you know, someone asked a question about something that I said in my speech about, well, how do you do that? And I said, you get still. You just get still. And you just allow yourself some space to breathe. And, you know, I talked about meditation, which has been a very, very important part of my life. Um, And but but it took me years to make that a regular practice. People told me forever, oh, you need to meditate. Oh, do you meditate? And, And I kept hearing it. And I and I have this really flexible lifestyle. You know, I don't have a partner. I don't have kids. I work from home. I make my own schedule. And I still wasn't able to make time to meditate until someone said to me once, it doesn't matter what position your body is in. You can be lying in bed. Just do it. And since she said that, I literally meditate every single day now because I just do it in bed. And there are a lot of people that will tell you that's not the best way. You should be sitting up straight. And, you know, there are all these rules about how to meditate correctly. And I just say to everybody, do it in the way that works for you, whatever it is, not just meditation, but your whole life. You have to find a way that works for you, though. There are tons of writers that tell you you need to write every day. Well, I don't write that way. I like to go away for a week or two weeks and write eight to twelve hours a day. So everybody has their own way of doing things and just find the one that will actually contribute to your well being and your peace of mind.
1: Well, and you mentioned earlier that the the author Siegel had said that those who put other people first are the ones who end up with cancer. And I can imagine some people listening going, Are you saying people cause their own cancer? But there is this discussion worldwide. About the fact that the more broken down stress, immune, everything, the more you have an environment where cancer can thrive potentially. that right. does not mean you're causing your own cancer necessarily, but that if cancer was there, it's got an, an, a healthy environment for itself to thrive. Is that the reference that, you're, that you're, he's making in, in that the concept of, you know putting yourself putting others first is the, are the people who get cancer? Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
0: you know, this is misunderstood a lot, I think. Um, and I talk about it a lot because I, I actually do think I manifested my cancer for a reason, right? Because I think our body is brilliant and that it sends us messages all the time. I mean, you can think about it even on a small scale, that when you get a cold, it's usually a sign, okay, you're doing too much, you need to rest. It literally, your body forces you to get what you need. And so it's the same with other things that happen. Um, You know, there's a great book that Louise Hay wrote called You Can Heal Your Life. And there's been other scientific study that's been done on uh, links to physical problems in the body that are connected to our emotions. And a lot of these books have been written by doctors. Lisa Rankin is another MD who I really appreciate her work. She wrote a book called Mind Over Medicine. And it's about how what our doctors tell us and about the environments that we live in do create circumstances. Now, it doesn't mean that you getting sick is your fault ever. I don't want anyone to ever hear that. Um, and there's a great quote by Christian Northrup uh, that deals with this. I don't know if I'm going to remember it exactly right now, but she talks about how it's our responsibility to... to deal with what happens to us, not to blame ourselves for what happens to us. And I think that's a really important distinction. It's easy for people, I think, to get upset, and understandably so, if they think someone else is telling them, oh, it's your fault that you got sick. No, we all live in a really stressful environment. We all are dealing with environmental pollutants and chemicals and, and things that just weren't around 100 years ago. Um, and all of those things take a toll on our psyche and our health and our well-being. And, and, we, and all those things are connected. There is more and more scientific proof now of things that, you know, some people have intuited for centuries. We, we are not just a body. And we can't, when something breaks down in our body, we can't treat it like we would a car or a toaster, you know, and, and try to fix it like it's mechanical, our mind and our spirit are connected to that body and all three parts of that play a huge role in our health and well-being.
1: Yeah, and this is very much in the parasympathetic versus sympathetic and how the body reacts, right? versus That's right. the reaction and a lot of people uh when we have these discussions, people are like, "Oh, you know, I don't need to monitor this stuff or I don't I can just I just do what I do." And what I notice is that if you can put people around you in supportive roles that they can notice it for you, it can be huge because often we don't notice like we can be on a high from something and forget how stressful that high is, even though it's a good high, right? We forgive like our high. So I would get to, I'm fortunate that I get to work with a personal trainer and my trainer and I, when I walk in because of our relationship, how long we've been working together, I start working on like something's wrong. Something is off today. I'm not my son. I can tell it. And he can tell it. Like, I love music and jamming and dancing. And about a week ago, I turned the music off and he went, oh my, that doesn't happen. If you just turn the music off in a workout, we're, you're not in a good space. Something is not right here. Uh, and it told me rest was absolutely needed. Mindfulness was absolutely needed. But having something that can help us see it can be important. Right. Whether, whether it be working out, would you agree that having something and what are things maybe working out to the main one? I don't know. Maybe for some, it's yoga, but something that you invest your time and your body into that allows you to have the signals to notice. Yeah. Well,
0: I think like you said, having other people around you, and that's another drawback of being single and now working from home, right? I'm not around any people regularly that would necessarily notice changes in my demeanor, my mood, my behavior, um, so having that is important you know having a good support system. My dad used to say to me you know I could never fake being sick when I was a kid because my dad sa- could always say I can tell by looking at your eyes that you don't feel well even when sometimes I was trying to pretend like I, I am okay. He's like no I can tell you're not because looking at your eyes I can tell that you're not feeling well. So having those other people to provide that feedback is important. And for me, I notice that my, again, I'm grateful now to my body for giving me these signals that in the past, I think, and sometimes still, you know, it takes some mindfulness to say, okay, instead of being annoyed that I'm sick right now, what are the lessons that are coming from this? Where am I hurting? What does that mean? You know, luckily I have this Louise Hay book. I can literally look up, okay, what's happening to me? Something's happening with my left eye and she'll tell me, you know, what that might relate to emotionally. So I can look at what emotions might I focus on to be able to deal with this. She even gives some um, mantras that you can say to kind of help overcome whatever you might be. But for me, it's just focusing on whatever it is that's going on. And it's trying to be grateful instead of frustrated or upset when those things happen. It's not always easy because you know, we look at illness as this intrusion in our lives or something that shouldn't be happening to us.
1: And when it
0: happens to me now, I just try to look at it as an opportunity uh, to heal something.
1: Well, and I, you know, you said, hey, being single, I don't have that person that can help re- see these signs, these symptoms that take place. Well, the irony of that is those who are married don't listen to their partner when it comes to this <laughs> stuff a lot of times like that's the last right. thing they'll listen to from their partner. You know, if a, a good friend says, Wow, you seem a little off, you're like, Oh, oh, thank you. You know, your partner says, You're like, Well, what are you talking about? You're the one in a bad mood. You're like, There's more of a likelihood to snap uh, with, the, with somebody you're with all the time. Right. Right. That's and you true. can think, No, it's you. It's not me. Uh, and so I think that's important for us to stop and go. If you are married or you are in a relationship, are you listening right. when somebody's telling you you're off? they might right. be off maybe you're right they're off too but that doesn't mean you're not off <laughs> so right. you know right. so are we listening i think is so important to that and the louise hay book you're describing almost sounds like a medical encyclopedia of this is happening and it might be tied to this is that accurate yeah in some
0: ways i mean i've i've seen the exact same chart in other books Um, So it's not necessarily original and, you know, it doesn't cover everything. She says people are always, you know, uh, reaching out to me and asking about, oh, well, what about this? It's not in there. And she said, you can use your intuition to figure out what's going on. The first time I found out about this book, I had this really weird neck pain and I couldn't really turn my head very far to one direction or the other. So it caused me problems when I was driving because I couldn't look over my shoulder to check the lane next to me. And I'm a river guide. So I was about to guide a canoe trip in which I'm in the front canoe leading 12 other canoes down the river. And I'm constantly turning around and counting boats and making sure we have everyone and making sure everyone's spaced appropriately. And, and I was like, I don't know if I can go on this trip because I really can't. I can't turn my neck. I don't know what's going on. And I was talking to my friend about it. and She, she said, hang on. And she pulled out this book and she said, who's being a pain in your neck? And what are you being inflexible about? And as soon as she said that, I knew exactly what it was about. I knew that it was about this argument I was having with somebody, and that I was being totally rigid and inflexible in my response to this situation. And that my perception was this guy's being a pain in my neck. And that didn't necessarily cure my pain and make it go away. But once I, you know, I got some help and took some muscle relaxers and saw my chiropractor, and and then when it went away, it stayed away. You know, it didn't come back because I figured out the source of it and I dealt with it.
1: That's powerful. And, and the book is You Can Heal Your Life, right, by Louise yes, Hay? Uh, that's right. And I noticed there's two versions. There's a heal your body and you can heal your life. So people can look up both of those and check it out. There's Kindle. And, of course, your book, which is we talked about already, but it's so important. And I think it's wonderful that you're talking with an audience that often is not being addressed which is the being single with cancer. That's the title for anyone listening. And of course they can get all that information, uh, your book, your blog at I am Tracy for anyone listening. You want to get Tracy to come and speak. That's a great way to reach Tracy. Uh, Tracy, what are some, is there anything we haven't discussed yet that you think is important towards mindfulness, maybe directly with being a survivor or just as a whole in life? Well,
0: we did kind of already discuss it. Um, But but maybe just to to reiterate it a little bit more, the idea of finding something that works for you and doing and doing it in a way that works for you. um, You know, it's so easy for us to say, oh, that's not important or I'm too busy. And I heard this great quote. I'm not sure who said it. It might have been the Dalai Lama who said, "Um, everyone should meditate an hour a day unless you're really, really busy. And then you should (laughs) meditate, too. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, yes, I love that quote. You knew
0: that was coming, right? Yeah.
1: I love that quote.
0: I do too. I think it's so great. And and you know, I I do almost every day now meditate an hour. But when I started, I never would have thought I would get up to an hour, and that seemed impossible. And sometimes I do meditate too. Or you know, it may not be all meditation. I, I do a qigong practice, and I do do yoga, and I journal, and sometimes I just in my time now is in the morning. So this morning, I happen to get up really early. I don't usually do that. I tend to sleep in a little bit more, but I woke up really early. So I thought, great, I can get my meditation done really early and get a little bit of work done before we talk today. Um, so, you know, a lot of people wake up early and they're frustrated that it's 5 a.m. and they can't go back to sleep. And I used to be one of those people. And now I think, oh, great, I can't go back to sleep. So it's a great opportunity to get some more meditation in that I might not be able to do.
1: What an awesome note to leave us on. Thank you, Tracy, so much for joining us on today's episode.
0: Thank you. I so love being with you. It was a great discussion.
1: Well, thanks. And for everyone listening, we hope that you share this podcast with all your friends, Everyday Mindfulness Show. Remember, you can also listen and see any links to Tracy or any of our guests at our website, everydaymindfulnessshow.com. And until next time, may you lead with love. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. And check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.